0: Thank you, this is extremely informative and you know I think this raises a lot of concern. Um, the financial capital or the the I guess in some ways the decrease of financial capital in the STEM fields, but I guess I'm more concerned with the human capital aspect. And you talked about uh, you know that we do have an increasing reliance on international graduate students, postdocs. Um, Coming into our universities, and at the same time, you know, some indicators are saying that uh, these individuals are now more likely to go back home as their own economies are, are building and strengthening. So on one side, we're doing a horrible job preparing our K-12 and even at the university for STEM fields, and now we're relying on these temporary employees who may not always be there. So uh, what are your what are your what's your response to that? Where are we heading?
1: It was interesting when when I was in Washington and and I was testifying about international students because, you know, the then president of ACE, David Ward, was an international student, and I was an international student. We kind of were speaking in our own case. And, of course, we think that, you know, by all means, make them stay. But I must say that the opportunities provided in the United States, of course, have been outstanding, and I'm eternally grateful for that opportunity. I mean, that's, it's a balance. We Clearly, we should have a domestic pipeline into these critical disciplines, into. Into the knowledge economy visa, uh, you know, via the creation of knowledge through our universities and through other research-based agencies. But uh, you know, in in the meantime, I think that you you we need to have this international flow as well. And frankly, since World War II. If you look at the American Nobel Prizes and so on that have been won, and what has driven American science there have been a significant portion of international scholars who have come here and found golden opportunities. Now, one of the things, of course, that's lurking there is, are we providing the financial rewards for graduate students who spend, you know, sometimes too many years, but, you know, a number of years in on sometimes a starvation diet? Are we providing the incentives or they're all going to become investment bankers with dire consequences for the the nation. So I think we, we, we need to look very carefully at that incentive structure and start at home. Start with all of this, you know, this whole alphabet soup of supported programs that can help students from all backgrounds get into constructive primary and secondary education with good teachers, recognized and rewarded for their work, We have to have that pipeline. Of course, I haven't said much about primary and secondary education, but that's still a a bottleneck. But we also have to look at the opportunities provided in academe, both providing the the support for graduate students, including in the humanities and other areas, so that they can actually afford to go through this lengthy apprenticeship. And then we have to have reward structures, and we have to have you know, we may have to have have to have some degree of job security, so we don't get a kind of an itinerant itinerants who are moving from university to university, living on temporary. Hope to, that whole structure has to be be looked at, and it has to be strengthened if we are going to really succeed. But I feel in, in the meantime, and I think also because of the leavening effect, you know, yes, let them come. And uh, you know we can benefit from their talents so much the better. And frankly, the University of Minnesota has had usually about a thousand Chinese students every year, thanks to probably missionaries who've been in China in the early part of the 19th century, 18th, uh, 20th century. And Minnesota has tens of thousands of Chinese Chinese alumni, and this is a this is a a useful resource, and certainly can strengthen international understanding and i I was in a Muslim country last year, and I met a student there who had who was at a Muslim university who had been in the United States and was absolutely gloried in the experience it had in this country so I mean you shouldn't underestimate the goodwill that is created even if they go back home, but it has to, we have to start at home that's the most important thing. Yes, do you have any advice or tech transfer for AAU institutions or ways that you've seen be particularly effective to overcome the sort of bureaucratic hurdles or the uh, distrust of industry or what whatever some of the impediments might be to effective tech transfer from research institutions? An effective technology transfer is very, very important, and of course, the Bayh-Dole Act in 1980, by assigning the intellectual property to the universities, was a st- step in the right direction. We spent a lot of time in AAU working with uh, the uh, um, working with, for example, the Council on Competitiveness and w- in organizations where you had both business leaders and academic leaders, in order to try to facilitate these. As so often, it came down to nitty gritty, and we brought in the patent officers from the various universities, and it was very illuminating to see how the hurdles that had to be overcome in order to be able to get patents or, or to sell and exploit the, the, the research. I don't, I don't, there's no patented solution here, but I, I think that it's, it's very important that we continue to look at these regulatory pathways. And uh, it also the business complained that the universities really didn't need how to go buy, know how to go about technology transfers and the universities complained that business was just trying to, you know, get a good deal. So there was a the two cultures sometimes didn't mesh. And that's why I think some of these these mechanisms that were established and that are in place for academics and business people to, to meet and try to sort it out. But I have no patented solution to it. You know, I haven't done technology transfer on that issue. But um, it's very important that the business and academic communities work, work together. Universities have come a long way. I mean even 20, 25 years ago at the University of Minnesota, there was no interest in exploiting the research. And there's, there's now a, a, a whole Office that does nothing but technology transfer, and I think most research universities have very major operations like that. And I think it's beginning to suffuse the culture. And faculty members were were not interested; there was no financial gain in it before 1980, and they have become more interested and and much more willing to undertake technology transfer. So I'm hopeful that it's improving. But it's there's still, when you look at the nitty gritty, there is still a lot of bureaucratic. Problems. Yes?
0: Talk a little about globalization and how the United States is now competing directly with all these other institutions, especially on the Shanghai index. I'm curious if you've got any thoughts on
1: movements in Europe like the Erasmus system, where they've got an equality of undergraduate programs, so a student in Berlin can go to a university in either Sweden or or Spain. Um, And those schools are just Whereas American institutions expect that you've got a four year degree program. I was wondering if you've got any thoughts on whether that makes it less competitive to try and borrow European scientists and European researchers for graduate programs. hmm Well this this has been an issue. As you probably know, within the the European community there have been a number of of agreements, mostly named after cities like Barcelona, for example, where a, a very, very parochial set of university systems have been brought together to try to simplify transfer and make more of an integrated European system. One of the issues have been that the undergraduate degree, and by the way, they've kind of adopted a, an American-like system with a bachelor's and master's and PhD degrees now rather than you know the multifarious system that various countries have there has been an issue because the the bachelor's degree is supposed to take three years in Europe. And the question is there whether the gymnasium is so much better than the high schools that you can actually do the same work in three years in Europe that you get to the same level as you do in four years in this country. Of course, we have the same discussion here that many students could probably do a bachelor's degree in three years. That's been an issue, and uh, I don't know exactly where it stands at this particular time because there have been... Been some question whether American universities should accept Europeans with three-year degrees into graduate work, I, th- I think we have great diversity of quality still within the European system, and I think that, you, as used to be the case, that uh, there were there were agencies in this country that kind of evaluated almost on an institution by institution basis what the degree was really like, and I when I undergraduate graduate work at Harvard I was kind of on probation. They could see what, what I'd actually learned at Upsala, and it wasn't under after until after a semester or so that they really would recognize what I had what done. I I think it's being sorted out and certainly the the, the 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 Europeans getting together and making for internal transferability and setting up a system that is more it's more easily interpreted in international terms. I think that's a step in the right direction. But I can't, I can't tell you in any global way whether how quality might be suffering or furthered by that particular thing. Was that your question? Mm-hmm. Yes?
0: Uh, one issue that has currently come up in all these sessions during the colloquium is the per- per- pervasiveness of the view of higher education as a private good, and that has raised a lot of- So I was wondering if you have any advice uh, for advocates of private education to to raise awareness of its importance
1: at a national level? Well, the question was about education as a private good rather than a public good, and I, I'm very, I'm, I'm utterly convinced that while of course it has wonderful <laughs> individual personal benefits and just the joy of being involved in this marvelous enterprise, that it is a public good, and probably the most important public good we have, because it is the mechanism whereby we create knowledge, which is the, you know, the magic of the future. It's the, the philosopher's stone. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it, it really is the foundation for our future. And if, if, the, if, if bringing people to their full capacity when it comes to knowledge production, and knowledge application seems to me to be, if anything, a public good. Now, I, I think university, and I, I attended a wonderful lecture by Lynn Nadell from the uh, the uh, new school of mind, brain, and behavior. It's actually it's an outgrowth of a decision package on cognitive science that President Koster launched 25 years ago. He gave a lecture there, and Centennial Hall was filled, it was packed. I couldn't believe it when I walked in there, a lecture about the brain, I mean, interesting as it is, but it, you know, the centrality the hall was packed, and I think that's wonderful because university, even if they didn't understand some of the subtleties about the hippocampus and all, all that, you know, it really demonstrated to a large number of people what is it the university does, and this is absolutely fundamental to our understanding of ourselves and our existence. And I think the University of Arizona is doing a good job in that kind of outreach. And I think that's what we have to do to sell education, higher education, as a public good. Just show the public what the heck we're doing. And we do an awful lot of very interesting and good things. But that's also why AAU didn't shy away. I mean, some of my humanist colleagues think that you're demeaning the humanities when you say, well. The humanities, the study of the humanities could be important in, in anal, analysis of national security. But of course you have to understand the cultures you're dealing with, and of course you need the humanities. And I don't think it demeans the humanities. On the contrary, it makes it even more interesting. So I think that we must not shy away sometimes from being practical and saying, of what are the practical applications here, and not be hoity-toity and simply say, well, that's so that's so." That's so under- that's so difficult to understand that you know you common people really can't understand what we're doing. I have no patience with that attitude. Okay, um, I guess
0: there's time for one question, so I guess I'll say okay. okay, I have a question. If you how would you advise our president, Dr. Shelton, in creating um, an action plan for the future in order to maintain our university
1: as a land grant and also to increase um our um our vision uh, you know in the world well let me say that from you know i read the newspapers and and i I'm, i don't have any inside information but i i must say I'm, I'm i'm very impressed by the massive effort that has been undertaken to improve efficiency and effectiveness and to really focus on those areas where the University of Arizona has not only national but world leadership. And certainly that school of mind, brain, and, and uh, behavior is one of those examples. And I think that's what has to, has to be done. It, it's very difficult to do because the university has to fulfill a very broad educational mission. And in Arizona, access is a, is a major issue. And you may have no option but to grow enrollment, but. Uh, when I hear somebody say that we, we access is more important than quality, I mean, I, I just cringe because if you don't maintain quality, then you know, it's for naught anyway. So somehow you have to try to be more effective, more efficient. It's very hard to do because teaching is a very personal matter, although we have now. We have wonderful technologies that I think can help us. And sometimes sometimes we are a little bit too conservative in thinking that, you know, if I don't stand at the lectern the way they did in the Middle Ages when there were no books and lecture to the students, then we're not really teaching. And I think there are many things that can be done. And I was impressed at the University of Arizona by what the Mathematics Department did at the time. We had a horrendous backlog of students who hadn't passed basic mathematics. And uh, the Mathematics Department really took on this particular issue and they started... With the help of technology, even the primitive technology of the 1980s, to teach large numbers of students in a more efficient fashion. So, so we have we have we have efficiencies that can begin. But I, I think that, controversial as it may be, and, and wrenching as it may be, I think that the University of Arizona is certainly, from what I can glean, on, on the right track. And the university, mind you, is in my experience, the most entrepreneurial university I've ever worked at. And uh, I mean, when I came, here, I was so impressed by what the university had done by investing strategically, sometimes in a very hard-headed fashion, in in areas where they had a natural advantage. And that, that built the institute. That's why they became AAU members, because they very systematically invested in those areas. To be sure, it meant that some other areas were kind of left in some mediocrity, but it was the right thing to do, and I think in this situation, too, you have to really look to your strength and invest in those strengths, and by all means, maintain those strengths, even if, you know, some other things have, have to go. But there's no panacea. It's very difficult to do. I did it at the University of Minnesota, and, you know, I took my beatings on that, too, as all university presidents. Do when they bring about change. But I think it's very important that you, as faculty members and students, that you, that you rally behind change and come up with constructive alternatives if you don't like what's being proposed, rather than saying that, you know, no, it's, it's got to be done the way we've always done it. Well, anyway, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to spend some time with you.